Bob Murphy Show, episode 117. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Before I dive into the content for today, let me just do a brief housekeeping announcement. So... For those who didn't hear the news, I am at home with a brand new baby, so that's great, of course. The, my wife is doing well and everything, uh, and that's why the frequency of new episodes is going to be diminished probably, let's say, through May, and then I should get more back onto a regular schedule. Um, I'm not getting too much sleep lately, and I'm trying to help out. So that's explaining that. Let me mention, if you have contributed, and how do you do that? You go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute and you think you're supposed to be in the secret Facebook group, shh, it's a secret, and I haven't followed up with you on that, that's just an oversight on my part because I lost you in the email, black hole. So please don't be shy about contacting me. Now, if I owe you a book, that isn't an oversight. It's just with the lockdown and everything, it's taken me a bit to figure out how I'm going to do that from home. But I am working out. The wheels are in motion, as Seinfeld would say. Okay, but again, if you've contributed and you think that I missed you, it's possible I did. So go ahead and please contact me. So for today's episode, what I want to do is just give a, a reaction to some of the economic commentary I've seen coming from Keynesians in light of, obviously, the coronavirus crisis and uh, to push back a bit. So first of all, let me just summarize a point I made in a recent post for Mises.org the latest unemployment claims data came out, so I'm recording right now on uh, April 24th, so you're hearing this at some point in the future, but in light of the recent unemployment claims figure that came out, economists right now, if I talk to labor economists, they're saying, because there's a lag with the data in terms of what's the, the official unemployment rate, but they're saying, yeah, based on the, the information we know, probably right now, if we had all up-to-date information and the BLS were to report what's the unemployment rate, it would be above 20%. And so, in case you don't know, that is literally the highest it's ever been since the darkest days of the Great Depression. All right, and the, the annual peak was 24.9% back in 1933, but that's arguably misleading because the way those numbers are calculated, if you had a make work job because of like the federal relief program, like the, if you worked for the Works Progress Administration or uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, you know, all those alphabet agencies, they wouldn't count you as being employed, right? Because that, that was deemed like that wasn't really a job. That was just kind of they were coming up with things to hand out money so people wouldn't starve. And all right, if we're giving you money, hey, why don't you go plant some trees or something while you're at it? You know, that was the attitude. And so, and I think justifiably so, that those really weren't economically meaningful jobs that nobody besides the government with that money in their hands would have paid someone that amount to go plant trees. It wouldn't have been worth it. All right, so they didn't count those people as employed. So that, of course, meant the, the unemployment rate was higher back then in terms of how labor economists go and estimate that stuff. So if you were to use more modern approaches where if the federal government pays you to do a job, it doesn't matter whether it's actually productive in some abstract sense, it just, that is what it is, then the unemployment figures are lower. And then the, in that case, it's um, 1932 is the record holder. It's like 22.5% or something like that. All right, so my point being, because of that technical adjustment, it's possible when the new numbers finally come out, because again, there's a lag, it's conceivable that right now we're going to have the highest unemployment rate period in U.S. history, if you were to have made that adjustment, because again, they measured it differently back then. All right, so that's one thing. But my more fundamental point 
is that because of the difference between layoffs versus lockdowns, there's a sense in which the current crippling of the labor market is far more economically devastating than even what we saw back in the depths of the Great Depression. So specifically, during the Depression or any recession for that matter, what's going on? Why is it that all of a sudden a bunch of people can't find work? Well, it's because, at least according to Austrian business cycle theory, there had been an earlier phase of an unsustainable boom during which mail investments were made, right? So the complex interlocking structure of production that involves capital goods, that's the hallmark of the Austrian approach to, let's call it macroeconomics, if you will, that gets transformed into an unsustainable configuration. And at some point, the crisis occurs, at which point workers need to be reallocated. They need to stop, you know, certain people in the economy need to stop getting up in the morning and going to what their previous job had been during the boom period because if all the workers just keep doing what they were doing, eventually there's going to be a catastrophe. And so it's actually mitigating the blow. It's acknowledging reality when the crash occurs and let's speak metaphorically as if the economy is a living being, the economy realizes it needs to rearrange what's going on. Like it can't finish all of the long-term projects that have been started. Some of them need to be abandoned completely. Others need to be revamped to be less or to be more modest. And, you know, so those enterprises, they don't completely shut down, but they do lay off some workers and other ones, you know, are, are relatively unscathed. So the metaphor that Mises used for that was imagine a master builder who's building a house and in the beginning when he's drawing up the blueprints, he thinks he has more bricks at his disposal than he really does. And so then Mises says, you know, given that erroneous information, he draws up more, a more grandiose plan than his available supplies would actually justify. And so Mises' point is that when the crisis occurs... When the builder realizes, oh, wow, I'm not going to be able to finish this house the way, you know, the specs require because we just, we're going to physically run out of bricks. Is it right to say, or what would you say that the builder overinvested in the house or overinvested in bricks, let's say? And no, that doesn't really wait. It's just, you would say it was a mal investment. It's that you didn't use, you didn't invest your resources in an appropriate fashion. And that's his metaphor for the economy as a whole. So I've taken that and sort of embellished it, fleshed it out, that analogy, your metaphor, to say, suppose that were the case. Suppose there were a builder who's working on a house. Let's say his blueprints call for 100,000 bricks. By the way, I have no idea how many bricks go into a house. Maybe it's only 10,000. Let's say 10,000. <laughs> I have no idea. Let's say 10,000 bricks. And the blueprints call for 10,000, but he really only has 8,000. At what point do you want the builder to find that information out? Like, because the crisis is clearly going to happen once he lays that 8,000th brick, right? At that point, no matter what he does, he's out of bricks physically. He can't bluff his way through it. Nothing he can do with the blueprints is going to change the fact that now he's out of bricks. And so obviously the point, the, the sooner in the, during the process of construction that the builder realizes he's 2,000 bricks short, the better. Because the sooner he catches the mistake, the less that he's already gone down the path of the first plan that we know is unsustainable. All right, so in a perfect world, before he lays one single brick or you know has the backhoes start digging or whatever, he would realize the mistake. Because then he could just revise the plans and all he would have lost was the mental effort and time it took to drop those first plans. But once he starts, the point is, He's, in a sense, digging himself or, I want to say, painting himself into a corner. And this, the later the discovery occurs, the worse the crisis is going to be. Because, again, the worst thing is if he lays the 8,000th brick and then says, okay, hand me some bricks, guys. Or, you know, tells his guys, okay, go around, lift up that tarp, and that's where the remaining 2,000 bricks are. They go lift the tarp up and there's nothing there. Then, you know, he might have trouble even covering the thing up to keep, keep the rain out. Whereas if he discovers it early on, you know, maybe the blueprints called for him to build a gazebo and he can just say, okay, well, let's, if he catches the mistake before the gazebo is started, maybe he can just use the bricks that would have gone in the gazebo to help 
soften the blow and maybe, you know, he can substitute and say, okay, originally I was going to use brick for this. Maybe we'll use something else that we have extra of and we can rearrange blah, blah, blah. All right. So clearly the earlier he discovered it, the better. So that's the metaphor Mises used for the economy. And the way I try to work unemployment into it is to say, okay, you're the master builder. The house is under construction halfway through. You realize, wait a minute, I'm supposed to have 5,000 bricks remaining and I only see 3,000. What's going on? And you go and you run, you tally, you're looking around the work site and, you know, trying to figure out, are we missing it? What happened to something, you know, something covering the bricks? And finally, when you're convinced that, no, I'm 2,000 bricks short, these plans aren't going to work. What are you going to do? You're going to pull out the bullhorn and say, stop working everybody right now because you realize we got to slam the brakes. We have to revise the plans. And you could even imagine like if there were specialized workers, like uh, the people who were going to put the, the windows in or something, maybe they had been getting ready to go put the windows in the gazebo. And maybe now you realize, no, we just, we just have to abandon the gazebo. We got to just leave it sitting there. It's half done. And uh-uh, the, the, the material, you know, the remaining bricks that we do have are more urgently needed to finish the main house after I revise the blueprints. And so even though it looks stupid, we just got to leave that gazebo sitting there wide open like that to the elements because, you know, the, 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 unfortunately those bricks have already been laid in the gazebo. We can't really get them out of there. Some of the other uh, plywood and whatever that we had sitting there we were going to use, we'll pull that over for the house. But we, we got we to gotta use the available supplies for the main house to finish that. That's more important given that we made the mistake. And so the people who are getting ready to put the windows in the gazebo – Maybe now, even when the work resumes, they're going to be sitting around twiddling their thumbs because now it's like, oh, okay, we don't even need you guys now until we get up to the second story of the main house. And then you can put the windows on in there. And so you can see how, even though it had the correct materials been known in the beginning and the plan would have rationally called for the workers to be used in an efficient manner so that you wouldn't have them lounging around for long stretches, given that you had to slam on the brakes in the middle at first, everybody's unemployed, and then as you re revise, maybe there's a gradual process by which the workers slowly get reintegrated back into the production. All right, so that's the way I took Mises' metaphor and tried to cover more elements of the standard business cycle with it. So back to the original argument, when there is a crash in a standard business cycle, the workers who are long-term unemployed are the ones who had been involved in projects during the unsustainable boom period that in light of the new information are considered expendable, right? They were working in projects that weren't that important in the grand scheme. The ones that, you know, given that we don't have enough resources to finish all the projects, which ones should we curtail? Those are the workers who get laid off, the ones in those lines. And then even the workers in lines that persist even there, there might be some layoffs, you know, so some firm that doesn't go under, but just has to do 10% layoffs, which workers are going to get let go? It's typically going to be the ones that are the least productive. Or, you know, if they're working on specialized projects that, you know, was kind of a luxury from the firm's point of view, it wasn't its core business, maybe they're the ones that get let go. But the point being, when 25% of the labor force in 1933 was out of work, it was the most expendable or the least important 25%, not in a moral sense, right? So I'm not casting judgment and saying, oh, that you should feel worthless or something in a, in a philosophical sense, but in terms of judged by consumer preferences and judging by what you happen to have been in during the boom period, your labor is more expendable than the other people who didn't get laid off, right? So another way of putting it is, given that the economy is going to shed 25% of the jobs, assuming there's not government intervention in the bust phase, it picks the least painful 25% to cut. And again, pain being measured according to consumer preferences ultimately. All right. In total contrast, today, if the actual unemployment rate is something like 22%, let's say, that's not the 22% least important jobs those people who aren't able to work right now, it's consisting of, well, it's driven by two factors. One is, can you work from home or not, right? So the people who are able to transition and work from home, 
obviously they're the ones, you know, they're, they're still doing it. So they get spared the ax. And then the other main criteria is, or criterion is, does the government deem your job essential? Because those people are allowed to go to work. And notice that those two criteria don't really line up with, is your job very important from the perspective of the consumers? Now, let me just avoid confusion here. Given the reality of the coronavirus, and by the way, I know some of you think it's not real or you think that I'm exaggerating the, the importance, put that aside, stipulate for the sake of argument that there is this virus that could have potentially deadly consequences for a lot of people and therefore, you know, the, the, the utility people get from going to bars right now is a lot lower than it used to be. Well, then that's a real change. And so, yes, that is according to consumer preferences and those jobs are going to go down. But my point being that pain caused by the virus is, is high, right? That people liked going to bars before. And so if the virus is sort of causing a lot of jobs to have to get curtailed, that's because of new information. It's not because during the boom period, you know, all of a sudden people started going out to restaurants and that was a totally superfluous thing. All right. So again, just to summarize, my point is given that whatever, 23% of the workforce is going to be unemployed, it's much less painful. It, it is much less economically devastating if the economy through normal market forces after a crash sheds those jobs in ways to, you know, bolster the profitability of the remaining companies that haven't gone bankrupt, that that's the way that in a sense, shedding the least important on the margin jobs from the perspective of ultimately consumer preferences. In contrast, if the jobs are shed be according to which ones happen to not be able to, you know, be done from home and, or that are deemed inessential by arbitrary somewhat arbitrary government officials and their pronouncements, you can see why that thing would be much more devastating, that second approach. The analogy I used in my article, in case you're not fully getting what my point, my point's a pretty simple one, but in, ca in case my explanation, <laughs> it took too long and you lost the, uh, the, the forest for the trees there, just think of it in terms of spending, right? So you're a household and you have two options. Under option one, you're told you have to cut your spending by 25%, but you get to decide where to cut. But, the, but again, the total has to go down by 25%. Under option two, a government bureaucrat tells you, we're going to come in and we're going to decide where to cut your household spending to make it get trimmed by 25%. Which one's more scary? Obviously, the second option is because there they might choose to cut spending on something that you think is really important and you would not have cut there. You would have cut somewhere else. So likewise, given that whatever it is, 22, 23% of the workforce now isn't able to go to their jobs, it would be much better if in the, a sense the economy chose through the normal market mechanism where to allocate those jobs that now aren't going to be fulfilled as opposed to the virus choosing and bureaucrats choosing. Okay, again, relative to what was our standard of living three months ago, that kind of thing. Okay, so that's one important difference and something that I haven't seen anybody else point out yet, so I wanted to reiterate that here. Now, as far as fallacies go, I saw Larry Summers had a tweet, I think it was on April 3rd, and he said, and this is all reproduced, so this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 117 if you want to look this stuff up. And he, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is definitely a spirit. He said something like, I'm cautiously optimistic that our recovery from this slump is going to be much quicker uh, than it would be after like a, a, a recession caused by a financial crisis. And he says, this, this time around, it'll be more like the way GDP recovers every Monday after the weekend or the way the Cape Cod economy recovers every tourist season after the winter ends. All right, and so just to make sure you're getting it, so what Summers is pointing out there is, yeah, right now the official measures of unemployment stuff are incredibly high such that this looks like it's the worst crisis since the Great Depression. 
But he's saying, I don't think that means this is going to be as bad as the Great Depression or second only to the Great Depression. I think we'll be able to bounce right back because this is caused by the fact that the government's just keeping people at home. So, you know, once that constraint is lifted, all the workers will go back to their jobs. And I think what where Summers is coming from is to say, we have all this pent-up demand, right? It's not that these workers aren't able to find work because people aren't spending, which is what happens after a financial crisis and everybody's trying to deleverage. He's saying this isn't, you know, a demand-driven slump, which might be hard to fix, and you have to use the appropriate government and Fed tools. He's saying this is just because physically workers aren't going into work because of the coronavirus. And so he's saying this is more like every weekend official GDP, if you were to measure it by day, falls off a cliff, right? Just think about it. What are the, the, the volume of new goods and services produced Monday through Friday, certain numbers of amounts, then Saturday it goes down a little bit and then Sunday it probably goes down a lot. And so if you didn't know anything, you know, Martians looking at our GDP by day might think, whoa, for some reason on Sunday, there was a depression that struck, but then Monday everything would go back to normal. And so Summers is saying that's kind of like what we're doing now, except instead of it just being over the weekend, it's a, it's a more extended thing. Or the other analogy he used was for Cape Cod, which you know has a bustling tourist trade during spring and summer, but in the winter, it kind of shuts down. And again, that's not there's not some depression there. And oh, gee, how are we going to recover from that? But what happens to the Keynesian multiplier in Cape Cod once the, the winter comes? No, it's because just the people leave, but then they're going to come back for other reasons and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so Summers is right insofar as his model goes. He's right. If all we had to worry about were workers selling their labor to a firm that just has a big production function and you know L is the only input, and then it just has to make goods and services come out the other end with those labor inputs and sell them to consumers, that would be fine. Right, We have locked down as long as we want. Then once the coronavirus threat subsides, according to the epidemiologists who, you know, Larry Summers is happy to outsource to their expertise, then, okay, boom, open the economy back up, flip the switch, the workers go back. And then because now they're getting paid, they can go out and buy the product. Boom, end of story. So the problem though with that is he's completely leaving out the capital structure. Now, Larry Summers isn't stupid. He understands in the real world, workers need tools and they need intermediate goods that have been produced by other people in their jobs. But still, I think a lot of the commentary coming from mainstream Keynesian economists on this, Krugman's another one, who are excoriating the Republicans who want to open up the economy, saying this is crazy, this is way too early. You know, the epidemiologists all tell us we got to wait at least another couple months so we have adequate testing in place and blah, blah, blah. I don't see them recognizing this fact, right? That the economy is based on this complex capital structure that's integrated with all the different sectors relying on each other sequentially in a time-consuming <laughs> process. And so the longer this lockdown persists, I think you're going to see growing pockets of uh, disturbances or imbalances in the structure of production. So if it was just one week, not a big deal. But as it gets to be a month, and then if it goes to two months and three months, I think after a while, it's going to be pretty bad, which is why I'm, I'm hoping these phased returns to work that the states are undergoing as I'm recording this. I think Georgia today was supposed to uh, allow like barbershops and hair salons to open much to the chagrin of you know, all the responsible people. Um, next couple of weeks, I think they're all supposed to be reopening, at least according to like the phase one or whatever from those federal guidelines. And I, I really hope that that goes off without a hitch. I mean, besides for medical reasons, like I obviously don't want there to be a surge in cases, but also we need to get people back to work. It's, it's not that there's this pile of tuna fish and uh, bottled water and so forth and electricity that the federal government is sitting on that can just borrow or, or that, you know, private capitalists are sitting on and the federal government can just borrow money and buy it from them and then hand it out to people in relief efforts. Like this, that's just not 
what our savings consists of. And uh, without people going to work, I think you're going to start seeing pockets of those things opening up. And we already are seeing anecdotal reports about farmers having to let crops rot and, you know, dumping potatoes and things like that because the commercial demand is driven up. So that's the type of thing I'm talking about that over time it's going to get worse. So the example I use in the article just to drive home the point is if we wait too long and then say, okay, everyone go back to work now. So the carpenters go back to work. Oh, phew, finally, we get to go back to work. You know how much... You know how much pent-up demand there's going to be for us to go start building decks and stuff? All the people that postpone that during the lockdown. And yep, everyone's ready to, and oops, there's no nails anymore. Because all the people who are supposed to be making nails for the carpenters, they've been at home too for the last three months. And yeah, there had been some inventory of already made nails going in this crisis, but we used that all up in the, in the three-month lockdown or whatever it is. All right, so that's the kind of thing I mean where the, the economy, again, is this complex interlocking capital structure where each firm and the workers who show up to their work site, they're not just using their bare hands. It's not just a matter of them plugging in their labor hours. They're using materials and tools that were produced by somebody else ahead of time. And so when you start picking and choosing and knocking out 25% of the workers here, there, and over there, that's going to have ramifications and you can't just flip a switch and have it go back on. Folks, let's take a break from my discussion of economic fallacies around the coronavirus crisis to talk about why you should subscribe to the Laura Murphy Report. This is going to be the outlet where I'm able to go the most in-depth into my analysis of what's going on with the economy after you know all these crazy things that the federal government and the Fed are doing. And so if you're interested in that sort of thing, check it out. For sample issues and information on how you can subscribe, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash LMR. All right, now let me switch to a different fallacy that I saw. So this was kind of shocking to me. This was on April 23rd. I saw a tweet from Neil Irwin, who is senior economic correspondent at the New York Times. He's got 86.5 thousand followers and he's a blue check mark. And so he's retweeting from this other guy named Skanda Amarnath. And he's got neoliberal sellout in his like in parentheses for his Twitter handle. Okay, good to know. And who this guy is, this Amarnath guy, uh, his bio says he works for Employ America with Sam A. Bell and who's this guy? Oh, that guy's name's not popping up, and somebody else. And then he says, a former hedge fund economist slash strategist and New York Fed research assistant. Okay, so, and he's got 4,000 plus followers. All right, so this guy's no slouch either. So what was, oh, so Neil Irwin retweets this guy by saying, the most important thread you will read today or ever to understand macroeconomics. Now, since I'm someone who talks about macroeconomics, I would like to read the most important thread of my life on this. So I go through it. And let me just read you portions of it. You'll get the gist pretty quickly. So this guy, Amarnath, was retweeting Nikki Haley. And she had said in her tweet, states should always plan for a rainy day just like any business. I disagree that states should take Fed money or be bailed out. This will lead to taxpayers paying for mismanagement of poorly run states. States need to tighten up, make some cuts, and manage. All right? So that's what she said. In relation, obviously, to the you know, federal relief efforts and proposals, like, oh, wow, certain states are getting crushed by this because their revenues are down and you know their unemployment claims are up and blah, blah, blah. And so they need the federal government to come in and bail them out. Otherwise, these state governments are going to go bust. And so, again, Nikki Haley is saying, no, we shouldn't bail them out. They should have been planning for a rainy day. We expect businesses to have contingency funds and blah, blah, blah. So state governments as well. This is unfair. This plan will just reward those state governments that were profligate and penalize the ones that were responsible. Right? That's what she's saying. So in response to that, this Amarnath guy says, does Nikki Haley not know what we're doing for businesses right now? Sounds like she's also against PPP. All right, so I think what he's saying is she's being stupid 
for saying, why are we bailing out state governments when we're not bailing out businesses that we are bailing out businesses? All right. And um, incidentally, that's not what she said. What she said was states should always plan for a rainy day just like any business. Right. So that's still a true statement, even though businesses are being bailed out too by the government. Another difference, you know, you could argue is the reason a lot of businesses need to be bailed out right now is that the government is literally preventing them from operating. So some of them like restaurants and airlines and movie theaters would be in trouble even in Rothbard land. But there's a you know separate element there that the businesses are being penalized, not because of the coronavirus, but because of the government's response to it. But in any event, so that's not the important part of Amarnas tweet. He goes on to say, if your answer in recessions is, quote, you should have saved more, with an exclamation point, you fundamentally misunderstand the nature of recessions. To be fair, this error is also committed by folks on the left. Okay, so what he's getting at is he's saying, you know, Nikki Haley's coming from the right. Oh my gosh, these uh, pull your ups, yourselves up by the bootstraps mentality and rugged individualism. They just don't understand what happens in recessions. If you think if you're looking around at the firms going under during a recession or the state governments that are in financial trouble and you're wagging your finger at them saying, the reason you're in trouble right now during this recession is you didn't save enough during the good times. And so that's why now during the bad times, you're in a crisis. He's saying, not only is that wrong, it's that you don't understand how recessions work. Okay. So then he's got a tweet thread here. Obviously, folks, I'll link to this at the show notes page. Again, bobmurphyshow.com slash 117. So his next tweet says, total income equals total expenditure. If you want to earn more than you spend, you need someone else in the economy to correspondingly spend more than it earns. Every dollar of surplus must find its source from a dollar of deficit and vice versa. Let's read a couple more here. These are, you know, sequential tweets that he puts up. The problem for households and businesses is that as private sector actors, they need to have extra cash flow, and then in parentheses, income after expenditures, if they have any hope of building something. They don't have stable sources of borrowing in order to run indefinite deficits. Next tweet. The federal government is unique because it does have a stable source for borrowing indefinitely, the Federal Reserve. While the Fed doesn't say this explicitly, its method for toggling with interest rate flows, or sorry, toggling with interest rates, flows through the purchase and sale of U.S. Treasury debt. Now, this is a key one. Next tweet. Keynes's core insight, in my opinion, is the paradox of thrift. We can't all save more. This is always true, and the always is caps. We couldn't have prepared for this shock by, quote, all of us saving more. Someone has to run deficits. The federal government is usually in the best position. Next tweet. Think businesses and state governments should have had massive rainy day funds for this event? Fine. But then you need to run even bigger federal government deficits to make them that even remotely realistic. And then he says, deficit ends up getting associated with deficiency, but federal deficits are really supplying surplus income to the economy. In periods of high risk aversion and a shortage of income, businesses and households rationally want to save more. Okay, and then he's, I'll I'll stop at that point. I think you guys get the option or get the idea. Okay, so again, the the money quote there, the money tweet was in response to Nikki Haley saying, hey, I don't think we should be bailing out the state governments. They should have thought ahead. They should have had a rainy day fund. That's what we say businesses should do. Why not state governments? And, And he's saying not only is that wrong, it's impossible or at least it's impossible for the state governments and private sector to all have built up these rainy day funds if you're not willing for the federal government to have run a corresponding deficit all along to be the accounting flip side of that. And again, the money quote here is he says, we can't all save more. This is always true. We couldn't have prepared for this shock by all of us saving more. Someone has to run deficits. The federal government is usually in the best position. Okay, so there there you have it. So this, this is, is absolutely fundamentally wrong. It's wrong both according to the letter and spirit of what he's saying, all right? So in terms of just, you know, the, the spirit of the big picture, 
he's saying that Nikki Haley is wrong for thinking that state governments could have been in a better position to deal with this crisis. And that, I mean, come on, that's obviously not correct. Let me just do it to you this way. So all, you know, last 10 years, you're telling me the state governments, you know, they're getting property tax receipts and sales tax receipts and some of them have income tax. So they're getting all these revenue sources and they're spending money. And you're saying it, we couldn't have identified certain things that they spent their money on that instead of that could have been devoted to stockpiling cans of tuna fish and bottled water and uh, flashlights and surgical masks and N95 masks and gloves and hand sanitizer. And you don't think we would have been in a better position collectively back in March 1st if all the state governments over the last 10 years, instead of spending it on some things we could have identified that were consumption that were, you know, here and gone, instead they had, you know, six months supplies worth for all their state residents of those various goods. Are you kidding me? You're, you're, what, you, <laughs> all right. And, and notice there's nothing there that would have prevented them from doing that. There's nothing about the accounting or, you know, income tautologies that would have prevented them from instead of like buying commercial time for political ads, instead of they had spent it on something else, right? The, 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 the expenditures would have been the same either way. It's just the composition. What did they spend their money on would have been different. And you're telling me that wouldn't have made a difference? All right, so, so that's, there's that element. Another element in this, just to, to show you something can't be right here, is he's arguing that it is impossible if you look at a given jurisdiction of people it's impossible for every sector, if you include the government, to save. That necessarily, if one subset of the community saves more, that means some other subset has to be dissaving. You know, that, that's what his argument is. And he thinks he's proving that with equations. And so, okay, so then what do we mean if, like, it's, t it's common to say stuff like, oh, yeah, uh, people in Japan save more than the United States or people in China save more than the United States. I mean, he'd have to be argue that that's nonsense. Or if it's not nonsense, if he's saying, oh, no, 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 what they mean by saving more means one thing. What I'm talking about is something else. Well, then clearly what they mean by saving more, when you say that like, the Japanese have a higher savings rate than Americans, what that means is obviously what Nikki Haley means. All right, so again if he's going to just fall behind the defense of, well, it depends what your definition of saving is. And, you know, I'm talking about a particular, well, then he's obviously using a definition that doesn't line up with what Nikki Haley was talking about. So again, clearly state governments could have conducted themselves differently without raising taxes over the last decade, such that they were in a better position to deal with this crisis. I'm not saying it's their fault for not being ready for it, you know, because, who could have predicted this, that kind of thing. But clearly, had they known 10 years ago that this crisis was going to hit and what it was going to look like, they could have taken steps to be better prepared for it. And again, without raising taxes, they could have just changed what they spent their money on. All right, so that's, that's an element. Another thing with this stuff too is, just imagine Robinson Crusoe on his island. And he can either just spend his days lounging around, living hand to mouth, or every day he can save some coconuts, right? He, he harvests 10 coconuts a day and he could just eat all 10 and then lounge around. Or maybe each day he only eats nine coconuts. And so he saves up a coconut per day. He builds up a stockpile and then he just gets that rotation going so that he ends up every day, a portion of his labor now is freed up instead of having to just go harvest coconuts to eat. He now can start building a net and then he goes and starts fishing with it. And now he's, you know, augmenting his standard of living even more. And then he starts building a hut and blah, 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 right? So over time, the Robinson Crusoe in one universe, in one timeline, saves and accumulates capital goods. And his standard of living five years later, if we check in on him, is great. Just like, you know, Tom Hanks and Castaway, that when the, the scene shifts and all of a sudden you see him in the future and he's become a pro at living on the island, well, you see the result of a lot of saving and accumulation on his part. Right? Or in the different timeline, the Robinson Crusoe doesn't do anything. He just keeps living hand to mouth. And there's obviously 
an important sense in which the Robinson Crusoe, who is more prudent and saves and invests more, ends up with a higher standard of living. Now, maybe it's not current, maybe it's not optimal according to his preferences. Maybe he's got really high time preference and he shouldn't do that according to his preferences. Okay. But the way this guy is tweeting, you would have thought that would be impossible. That if there's just one person, you know, you can't save because there's no one else to go into debt to be the accounting flip side of your saving. And so I'm saying clearly there is a critical, relevant, important sense in which Robinson Crusoe can save out of his income and invest in capital goods that make him wealthier down the road, that raise his standard of living. And that's what Nikki Haley has in mind. So if your accounting framework doesn't allow that to be possible, well, then that's a stupid framework. That's misleading everybody. So, so that's the thing here too, is this guy thinks that Nikki Haley, what, she's, what she means by her statement, he's trying to show is wrong. He's not just making a pedantic point about, now, hey, you know, like in other words, it would be like, um, it would be like if somebody said, hey, we all need to work more during this, this downturn and then a physicist was pointing out to his class. Now, when they say work, they don't mean what we mean here in this class by work, meaning force times distance or, you know, force applied through a distance. That's what we physicists mean by work. You know, you could, you could go ahead and point out distinctions like that in terms of being pedantic or just to make sure that the class understands differences in definition. But you wouldn't, as a physicist, try to say, yeah, this idea that we're going to work more. I mean, I don't see force being applied through distance here, Nikki Haley. <laughs> like you wouldn't rule that out. You would just say, okay, she's using the word differently and we totally get what she's trying to say. So likewise here, as you'll see later in this episode, folks, I will rehabilitate the claim. I'll, I'll, I'll circle back and show, and show what, I, what I think this guy must have in mind and it's still going to be nonsense. But again, he thought he was meaningfully addressing Nikki Haley's real world argument and clearly he wasn't. At best, he was relying on some tautology that is not relevant to what she was saying. Okay, so there's that. that. That's the important thing, that clearly what Nikki Haley is trying to get across is correct, or at least it's, the, it's a defensible statement. And this guy talking about accounting tautologies is at best missing the point. Now, let me take him on point blank. He's just wrong. This is not correct. So this tweet where he says, Total income equals total expenditure. If you want to earn more than you spend, you need someone else in the economy to correspondingly spend more than it earns. Okay, so that total income does equal total expenditure. I'm not denying that. But then his next paragraph when he says, if you want to earn more than you spend, you need someone else in the economy to correspondingly spend more than it earns. There's a sense in which that's a true statement, but that doesn't correspond to saving right? So here, here's an example. Let's say my income is $100,000. And originally, I spend it all on consumption. You know, it's, it's for my apartment rent. It's for my car payment. I go out to restaurants. I go to the casino, blah, blah, blah. And I spend $100,000 in consumption. So I don't save it all. My total income equals my total expenditure. Then I decide to start saving. And so what do I do? I only consume, let's say, 80000 and then of my 20000 that's left over out of my income, every year I go out and I buy shares of corporate stock with it. Now, in that year, did I, quote, earn more than I spent? No. It's just I change what I spent my money on. Instead of spending that last 20000 on going out to fancy dinners and uh, you know fancy cars payment, I bought corporate stock with it. So there... My income was 100000 and I spent 100000 but I saved 20000 and I invested 20000 Okay, so that's the critical mistake he makes on his second tweet, trying to blow up Nikki Haley, is he has changed the definition of saving. Okay. Incidentally, even on its own terms, I could get really technical here and say, what if I took that 20000 and I just held it in cash? Right, so every year I'm earning a hundred thousand in income that I'm being paid with in dollar bills, and then I literally put a hundred dollar bills in my basement somewhere. Even there, that would be okay, 
right? I would be in, I would argue I'm still saving and I'm investing in a financial asset, namely currency, as opposed to investing in shares of corporate stock. So incidentally, I got into an argument with some Austrians on this years ago. I still think what I'm saying is right, but I just want to acknowledge this is a, is a more controversial position. But in any event, what if everyone were doing that? Still, that doesn't prevent saving and capital accumulation in the real sense. Okay, it just means prices would start falling if more and more people started accumulating cash balances. And the, you know, the fact that I, whatever I would have spent the 20000 on, but instead now I'm just stockpiling it in my basement, let, let's say it's like I, I cut out going out to eat so much. Well, those restaurants now, the demand for their product drops and they lay off workers. And so that labor gets freed up and ultimately, you know, maybe they end up going and working for factories that are making satellite dishes or something, or they're making ball bearings for tractor trailers. You know, they're doing things that are more long-term focused rather than short-term consumption. Okay, so the process by which saving financially leads to real changes in the structure of production that makes us more physically productive down the road that still happens even if the way people are saving is literally stockpiling currency, all right? But there you, you could get into a thing about, okay, maybe he's right that if one person is accumulating dollar bills, that means necessarily the rest of the economy has to be shedding them just because of the total dollar, number of dollar bills are the same, okay? So I'm, I'm saying even if you pushed me there, it's not gonna prevent saving in the way Nikki Haley meant. So he's still not right in the grand scheme as far as what do we care about and can we be ready for a recession or not? That, there he's still wrong, but that narrow meaning, the, in other words, the way to resurrect his claim in terms of the accounting is you have to assume that what he meant is by saving, I was going to accumulate dollar bills. And in general, why would you think that? That's not normally how people save anyway. Okay, well, one last little quirk. What he probably has in mind is... Like if, you know, like after a recession, you know, when a, when a crash happens, and, and by the way, Paul Krugman wrote about this, and so I'll link to it at bobmurphyshow.com slash 117 if you want to see some examples of this and really think it through. But Paul Krugman had a thing too where during, you know, the, the recovery from the financial crisis, he said something like, arithmetic has a well-known Keynesian bias or something like that or leftist bias. And there, again, he was doing the same thing this guy's doing, is he was trying to argue mathematically if a bunch of businesses and households are trying to pay down debt because they built up debt during the boom years, the only way that can happen without income collapsing is if the federal government runs a corresponding deficit. And Krugman was relying on the tautology that, you know, my spending is your income. And so therefore, if I'm paying down debt, Krugman thought that meant I'm spending less and therefore somebody else's income has to drop. And so the only way to offset that, he thought, if everybody on net in the private sector is doing that, or not everybody, but if on net more people in the private sector are reducing their debt than are increasing it so that on net the private sector debt goes down, he was saying the only way that's possible is if the federal government is its debt increase. And again, he, he didn't think that was a Keynesian claim about how the economy works. He thought that was flowing from arithmetic or more accurately from accounting. And no, that's not true. And so again, if you want to see a careful example of where I walk you through this, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 117. But the intuition is, well, let, let me first explain what, where they're coming from. They're thinking of it like this. I'm some guy, I, I get $1,000 in income and I, you know, let's say I have a $500 in debt. If I want to pay off the $500 in debt, that means I need to cut my $500 of spending on someone else. So that means somebody's income somewhere has to go down by $500. Or if that doesn't happen, like maybe the $500 that I pay to extinguish my debt, maybe that person now goes and just spends it on consumption. So maybe that restores you know, the, the spending flow. So the, the person that I didn't spend the $500 on, you know, if normally I go to whatever see a show or some concerts and I usually spend $500 on that. Now I don't, so that I pay off a debt. Well, what if that guy now goes to those concerts? So it looks like I, I reduced my debt by 500. Nobody's income dropped because the 500 that I 
didn't spend on consumption. The other guy boosted his consumption. But Krugman would say, I think, if you think about what happened there, the person that I paid down the $500 debt to, if they just take that money and blow it on consumption, now they, in a sense, dissaved $500 because they started the accounting period with this asset of my IOU to them of 500 that gets paid off during the period. So if they don't take the 500 I gave them and either hang on to it as an asset or you know invest it and lend it out to somebody else, let's say, now their financial assets have gone down in market value and so they've dissaved. So on net, that guy and me put together didn't save. I saved 500 and he dissaved 500. That's what these people have in mind when they're trying to argue the only way we collectively can save more is if the federal government borrows more. That's where they're coming from. But to repeat, no, that is wrong. It's, it's not correct. It's not just that it's misleading. It's not just like, oh yeah, it's, it's true mathematically, but they're ignoring you know real impacts. No, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, they are ignoring the real impacts, but my point is it's not even correct because what can happen is the... When I pay my debt off, let's say I pay the $500 debt off, that person can then take the money and invest it in a productive asset. And so that's still saving. So what, what happens is that person, like, okay, so here, here, let me walk you through the example. Remember, I had $1,000 in income and $500 debt. And typically what I would do is I would use 500 of my income to go to concerts. So now, Instead of spending the money on the concerts, I take the 500 and I pay my debt off. Now that guy who now just lost his IOU of 500, he takes the 500 and he goes to the people who used to perform the concerts and he pays them $500 to go irrigate his, his farmland, you know, to, like to, to dig trenches or something to make the, the, the water flow better. So now his farmland's more productive. So what happened there? Nobody's income went down. Right, my income was the same. His income was the same. The people the con who put on the concerts' income was the same. My debt went down five hundred, and the other guy, his he had a five hundred dollar asset disappear, but he replaced it with a five hundred dollar increase in the market value of his farmland. Okay, so his assets didn't go down. He just changed the composition, and so what happened, I would say, is the economy went from spending five hundred dollars on consumption of you know, extra musical concerts to a $500 investment in making the farmland more productive. Right? And there's nothing in the arithmetic that stops us from doing that. If one person decides to reduce consumption and to be more frugal and to instead generate something that has long-term value rather than something that only gives fleeting enjoyments, that doesn't necessarily require some mirror image person in the economy who does the flip side. If it did, we'd all still be living hand to mouth. I mean, that's the thing with this. That's crazy. It can't be that <laughs> Stone Age men and women back in the day couldn't save collectively. How, how could that be, right? So something's clearly wrong, and I'm trying to point out what it is. Okay. An another way of seeing it, by the way, in case you're getting all hung up on, oh, okay, Bob, yeah, you're pointing out like Robinson Crew, but this guy's talking about a modern financial economy, but corporations can issue equity instead of debt. Okay. So even when you're trying to think through like, oh, well, what if I put my savings in a bank and then the bank lends it out? There's got to be a debt course. No. I mean, th that could happen, I grant you, but it needn't happen. There's nothing about the accounting that forces it to be that way. Just think through everybody. All corporations could be financed purely by equity. They just issue new shares of stock. And so the people who have extra money after they get their debts paid off, right? So I pay my $500 debt off. That guy now, he lost the IOU but he takes the 500 in cash and now maybe there's a corporation that issues new stock and he buys that. And then the corporation takes that investment, it takes the cash and it hires the previous you know, musicians to go build a factory for him, right? So the corporation's not, it's not like it's in debt, right? Equity, that's not debt. The corporation is not indebted because they're shareholders. You can issue equity instead of issuing debt. So that's not debt. And it's not that they're on the hook and it's not that something disappeared, right? That factory is productive. So again, no matter how you slice it, this is just not correct. It's not merely that this guy is right mathematically, but he's missing the economics. No, he's not even right. This is wrong.
Okay, let me now just round it out with one last discussion here. The MMT folks, the modern monetary theory people, they have this demonstration where they use accounting principles and GDP accounting and stuff like that, income flows, to end up concluding that net private saving equals the government budget deficit. So I walk through this carefully in my article on MMT at Mises.org. Again, BobMurphyShow.com slash 117 if you want to see the link. But let me just run through it right here. So in this case, their argument is correct mathematically. Right, so again, they, they use accounting tautologies and GDP accounting and stuff like that, sectoral balance models, to end up with the equation saying net private saving equals the government budget deficit for a given jurisdiction. And, so, and that's why the MMT people think, you know, they, they look at historical examples and they say, whoa, look at during the 1990s, there was a lot, you know, the, the government paid down its deficit. As you may know, the federal government ran actually budget surpluses in the late 90s during the tech boom when you know, tax receipts were high. And then look at that gave us the crash in the early 2000s. And um, during the 1920s, the federal government famously under Calvin Coolidge ran a string of budget surpluses. And oops, that didn't turn out too good, did it? So the MMT folks think that armed with this equation that they think is, you know, hey, it's true. This is just accounting net private saving equals the government budget deficit, they think that shows them empirically what's going on in the world and why it is that if the government foolishly listens to right-wing blowhards who think like we're still on the gold standard, that you're going to set yourselves up for a crash. Because then again, in their mind, they're saying, if the federal government is running budget surpluses, what does that mean? It means the government is taxing more than it's spending on other things, right? Where spending is not including debt service, right? So that, that's where they're coming from. So the government taxes a trillion dollars out of the economy. It only spends 900 billion on goods and services. And then it retires $100 billion of debt. It runs $100 billion of budget surplus. So idiot Republicans and you know Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and Bob Murphy for that matter are going to applaud that. Well, I might not because I wouldn't like the taxation, but you get the point. That seems like it's being irresponsible. Oh yeah, we're living below our means. No, say the MMT folks, what you've just done is destroy $100 billion of net assets from the private sector because the private sector originally, you know, there, there's claims, financial claims on people, right? So if you have bonds issued by GE, that's, that's, a net, that's an asset to you. Right, I got a $1,000 bond issued by GE. That's an asset to my household, but it's a liability to GE. So since we're both in the private sector, collectively, that's a wash. That's not a net asset. So the only way that the private sector as a whole can have a net claim is if it's on something that's outside the private sector. And what's left, well, it's not Martians, it's the government. Okay, so again the only way the net private or sorry the only way the private sector can have a net claim a net financial asset is if it's on some entity outside of itself what does that leave us the federal government and so on the flip side if the federal government is reducing its indebtedness then that necessarily means the private sector has fewer net assets left so that's where they're coming from okay so that is a there's a sense in which those are correct statements but they're economically irrelevant, okay? And I, in my article, I go through more carefully, but for here, let me just give you some of the, the key points. So one thing is, there's nothing special about the government there. I could just as well pick Walmart and say, it's bad if Walmart runs a budget surplus, if Walmart has a profitable year and pays off some of its debt. Because if you think about it, that means all of planet Earth except Walmart now has fewer financial net financial assets, right? that that's a true statement. And yet, I don't think we're too worried about Walmart having a profitable year and paying down debt. That that's somehow going to make the rest of us poorer. Okay, and by the way, clearly what the MMT folks think and what this guy was arguing in the, the Twitter, the tweet storm there, is they think because the Federal Reserve can just print dollar bills with no strings attached, that that's what makes the government special. And it's 
I mean, that's an interesting detail, but no, the, the, the accounting tautologies do not rely on there being a fiat money issuing central bank. Like I said, the, all the equations would be just as true for Walmart. It'd be just as true as for Bob Murphy to say, folks, you know, it's in your interest for me to keep running up my credit card debt because if I try to pay down my debt as the Murphy household, that means all of planet Earth, less Robert Murphy's household, now has their net assets go down. So really, it's in your interest that I keep running up my credit card bill each month, right? That's, that's, a, that's just as true in terms of the accounting as what the MMT people are saying about the private sector and the government. It's just we're drawing the boundary lines in different spots. Okay. Now, there's something else that's really crazy about this is when you understand what the claim is and to the extent, you know, you acknowledge the extent to which it's true, okay, why would I want, as someone in the private sector, why do I want to have a net financial asset? All right, so you know, what, what, what good is it to me as a household if I have a bond issued from GE? And clearly the answer is, because GE is going to make that money somehow and then give it to me. Now, what if the way GE gets the $1,000 that it's going to pay back to me for the bond I'm holding... What if the way they get it is they stick a gun in my belly and say, give me $1,000. So I pull up my wallet and I give them $1,000 at gunpoint. And then GE hands me the $1,000 and then rips up the bond. It says, there you go. Did that do me any good? No, it didn't. And so likewise, the private sector as a whole, how does it benefit from knowing that it's sitting on net financial assets in the form of IOUs issued by the federal government? when a primary way that that's going to be financed and paid off is the government is going to, at gunpoint, take the money from the private sector to just hand it right back to them. Now, in fairness, the MMT people are going to say, oh, well, if that's the way they did it, that wouldn't count because that would be, you know, doing what we're, we're warning against. And so really the way to do it is just to print money. So really the way it's a, it's a benefit to you is if, the Fed just prints up the dollar bills that then the federal government uses to, to pay off its, or at least to service its, its outstanding debt. And that way, they're not taxing you to then just pay you back. They're you know, printing up the money. So at long last, now that we're an hour and five minutes into this episode or so, we get to the point where, okay, that's finally, that's a true statement. So yes, it is true that the only entity that's capable of giving more legal tender dollar bills to individuals in the private sector is the federal government right now via the, the central bank, given the current institutional structure. That's true. But that's not the same thing as talking about whether you can save or not. Right? There's plenty of assets that consist in things besides physical currency. And then last point, economically, Obviously, I would say that doesn't matter, right? If the federal government, it's, it's a likewise true statement to say, we could all be millionaires tomorrow. All the Fed needs to do is print up $350 billion and give every man, woman, and child in the United States a million dollars cash. Boom. Oops, sorry, $350 trillion. What am I thinking? All right, $350 trillion. I knew something was wrong there. Took me a second. Does that, does that sound right? We're all millionaires now? Well, no. Obviously, what would happen is prices would go through the roof. So yeah, we would all be millionaires, but being a millionaire would no longer be that big a deal. All right? So there you have it. So this is a great example. Again, this wasn't some punk. This was a guy who apparently worked for the New York Fed in some capacity, and he was being retweeted favorably by the chief economic correspondent for the New York Times, some guy with 85,000 followers on Twitter, saying this is the most important thread you'll ever read. And just saying it's impossible for all of us to save more, period, because of accounting. And the only way we can get around that is that the federal government has the Fed print up money and run budget deficits. I mean, th this, is, this is what Keynesianism drives people to. So to, in fairness... I don't know whether it's correct to say John Maynard Keynes himself would have endorsed this kind of nonsense. So yes, he does talk about the paradox of thrift and I would have to go reread the general theory to see you know, exactly what is Keynes claiming there. 
clearly Keynes is saying that's that's a possibility, but I don't think Keynes was trying to argue that in general it's impossible for us to save on net. I, I don't think he was arguing that. Okay, folks, well, that's, that's it for today. For all the links, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 117. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.